a Bible in front of you, I would invite you to turn to that passage we read in Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6. So, this coming week, it sees the, the culmination, doesn't it? It sees the, the climax of this great race for the White House. The two main candidates, uh, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, they have uh, they've done it all really, haven't they? They've, they've travelled the length and the breadth of the country. They have spent their uh, millions on TV advertising, their millions on leafleting. And come Tuesday, or I suppose it will be Wednesday morning, we will learn who the next president of the United States of America will be. But in the modern era, in this age of of instant communication, in this age of Twitter, this age of Facebook, where uh, a phrase or an expression, it can go viral, it can go uh, worldwide in seconds. It's become increasingly important for these presidential candidates for them to have a kind of a powerful phrase, you know, a, a significant soundbite that will somehow kind of define their campaigns. And I think if we cast our minds back just a few years, we see a, a great example of that. In 2008, with uh, Obama's kind of powerful slogan, Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And how that came to to represent his campaign of hope and change, I think it was. Um, well, this morning, as we open our Bibles, as we open to Isaiah chapter 6, we're met with an expression, aren't we? We're met with a phrase. Now, this phrase, it doesn't just sound kind of catchy, it doesn't sound good for a couple of months and then just die away. This is a phrase, this is an expression, a verse that that carries with it eternal consequence and significance. And it's that phrase in verse 3. Can you see it there? Those words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. So let's look at that phrase. Let's look at this passage of scripture. Let's examine this grand, this majestic topic of the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And we're going to look at the first portion of Isaiah 6, and we're going to do so by looking at three points together this morning. Three points. No surprise there, I don't suppose. But the first point this morning is this. It is a contrast with a holy God. A contrast with a holy God. Because we're told in verse 1, if your Bibles are open, verse 1, we're told that This vision 
that Isaiah, Isaiah sees, this vision of a holy God, when does it take place? It takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died. And that's not, that's not just some sort of a strange chronological marker. That's not just there that, so that you and I might be able to work out what year this took place. There is much more to it than that because what that brings out, what the first couple of verses bring out, is that there is a contrast here between Uzziah. A contrast between this earthly king and the eternal king, the Lord Almighty. A contrast between Uzziah and the Lord God Almighty. And the main thing that we should know about that just now is that they are contrasted in their purity. Do we all have that? Uzziah and the Lord are contrasted in their purity. Their purity is contrasted. You see, it says, folks, that this took place in the year that King Uzziah died. It doesn't say in the year that Uzziah's reign ended. It doesn't say in the first year of King Jotham, the son of Uzziah. It says in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's important because of what we learnt about Uzziah in that reading we had earlier on in, in Second Chronicles. You remember what we learnt there, don't you? We learnt that despite the fact that Uzziah led the people in a faithful way for years and years, he was a good king for a long time. Despite that, we, we, we learn that he became proud. He became sinful. He disregarded the holiness of God. He, in many ways, he dispensed of the priesthood. And as a result, he was struck down with leprosy. So Uzziah is being held up as this picture of impurity, of utter disgusting impurity. You see, what was he contracted with? He was contracted with leprosy, wasn't he? Leprosy. Now, leprosy at this time, it was seen as being the the absolute epitome of being unclean and of being impure. Now, Leviticus 13, Leviticus 13, 45, I think it is, it tells us that, that these people who had leprosy, that as they walked about the place, as they walked about, they had to shout out at the top of their voices. What did they have to shout out? Unclean! Unclean! And we're told in that same chapter of Leviticus that when these lepers, these poor people, when they had to walk about from place to place, such was their 
impurity, such as was their uncleanness, that they had to put their hands up to their face. They were so impure they had to cover their mouths as they walked about. So to have leprosy, to to be a leper, it was seen really as being as far removed from purity as it was possible to be. So on one side of this contrast, are you following me on this? One hand, we've got this impure, unclean, and unholy king, Uzziah. But on the other side, the other side of this contrast, in stark contrast with Uzziah, we have a picture here of the Lord God Almighty. We have got a picture of a God who is holy, a God who is almost indescribable in his perfect, perfect purity. You see, a a crucial element to understanding divine holiness comes in, well, appreciation of What one commentator says, and he's got a great quote about this, and if you take anything away from today, take away this quote. He says about God's holiness that it is God's unique moral and ethical purity. I'll say that again. It is God's unique moral and ethical purity. So we are... We've got Uzziah, this epitome of impurity. The Lord is the epitome of everything that is pure, of everything that is clean, of everything that is righteous and just. Where Uzziah would have had to shout out at the top of his voice, unclean, unclean as he walks about. Here we see that it's a seraphim. Here we see that it is others who shout out about God, holy, holy, holy. For Uzziah, he would have had to cover his own face because of his disgusting, repulsive impurity. Here we see that it's the seraphim. Here we see that that it's others who have to cover up in the presence of God. Such as his splendor, such as his radiant magnificence. He is a holy, holy God. So folks, let's get this straight, okay? That this vision took place in the year that King Uzziah died. It's not some sort of freaking crazy accident of history. Uzziah, this uh, earthly king charging into the presence of God and being made unclean because of it. He is contrasted here with the incomparable beauty and holiness of God. A God who is unique in his moral and ethical purity. A God who is transcendent and distinct. And a God who is pure. He is pure. Why? Because he is a thrice holy Thrice holy God. Now, I was reading a while back, it was online, and uh, 
It was a good while back now, but I was reading that uh, when Barack Obama and his wife, um, Michelle, when, when they visited the UK in 2009 for a, an official state visit, and there was quite a, quite a bit of speculation in the American tabloids about how the Obamas were going to behave in the presence of Her Majesty. Um, would Michelle Obama, it's crucial questions like, would Michelle Obama curtsy to the Queen? Would uh, Barack Obama remember all these the multitude of details of etiquette and protocol that's, that surround meeting the Queen? These are important questions, I'm sure. And I think although everything went fine, there was a very scary moment where Michelle Obama dared to touch the Queen on her shoulder, uh, breaking protocol, which I am, yes, it's shocking. It's a despicable behaviour on the part of Michelle Obama. But that does lead us into a second thing to consider here about Isaiah 6, because we've seen the contrast, haven't we? The contrast with the Holy God. But let's consider, secondly, the response to a holy God. The response to a holy God. So what do we learn in these verses about the appropriate response to God's holiness? Well, we learn, firstly, in the actions of the seraphs, the seraphim, that worship is the required response to God's holiness. Worship is the necessary response. You see, we made mention, didn't we, that the, the seraphs covered themselves up, didn't they? With their wings, they covered up their faces, they covered up their bodies. But they didn't just do that, folks, did they? What else did the seraphs do? We see that in, in verse 3. They called out to each other that phrase that we uh, read out earlier on. They sang praise to God. Because of his holiness, it was necessary. It was a requirement to worship God. And there's a few things that we should uh, perhaps at this point note about this worship of the seraphs. And the first one is, just look at it. It's continuous worship, isn't it? Because we're told in verse 3 that they were calling to one another. They're calling to one another. So this is what's known, I think, as antiphonal praise, antiphonal singing. So one would sing, and then the next would sing, and then back and echoed, and it was continuous, one to the other. There was continuous antiphonal worship of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, note, it was grounded in God's holiness. This worship, it was grounded in God's holiness. Just uh, look at the actual words that they sing. What do they sing? They say, holy, holy holy. And that's called the, the, the trisagion, I think. And that's what, that is a, a Hebrew literary device 
for emphasis, a Hebrew literary device for emphasis. You see the word holy, it's repeated. I suppose it's the the Hebrew equivalent of when we're on our computers and we put uh, our font in bold. Or if you're old school, like myself, I suppose it's the Hebrew equivalent of taking out a highlighter pen and uh, highlighting the word holy. God, he is not just holy. God is emphasized. He is holy, holy, holy. So this is praise. It is worship that is grounded in God's holiness. And the third thing that we notice about this worship is that it results in astounding power. Doesn't it? Astounding power. Because read on. Look at verse 4. What does verse 4 say? It says, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So at this point, friends, let me ask you, what does all of that mean for us in here, in this room, this morning? What is all of this, what is the application of all of this? Well, let me ask you a further question. What do you think is the future? What do you think the future holds for LCPC? What do you think the future holds for this congregation? What do you think the future holds for Christians up and down Britain? Do you think, as so many do, that it's just a, it's a no-hope scenario? You know, congregations like these, they're going to dwindle. They are going to die away in a matter of months or years. They just close those doors and forget about it. Is that what you think? Is it? Well, consider the seraphs. Consider the seraphim. They are, they are properly engaged in the continuous worship of a holy God. And if we do that, if we dedicate ourselves to God's holiness, if we in this church, if we as Christians in Britain, if we take God's splendid holiness seriously, and if God chooses to bless that, then power will accompany our worship. Power will accompany our witness, we will just imagine. We will see change in people's lives. We will see people saved. We will see God call people to himself. And we will see the very doorposts and the thresholds shake. But first of all, let's be clear on one thing. It's worship that is a required response to God's holiness. Worship. Okay, a second necessary response to God's holiness. We see in the reaction of Isaiah the prophet to God here. Just look at verse 5 with me for a moment, please. Verse 5. When confronted by this vision of God, what does Isaiah say? 
says, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, um, I don't know if there's any sports fans here um, this morning. I don't know if any of you are, are, are keen sports fanatics. If you are, you might know the story of Robert Teclamarium. Robert Teclamarium. Now, he was, believe it or not, he was the first skier to represent Ethiopia at uh, the Winter Olympics. So uh, I'm sure Teclamarium, back in his homeland, I'm pretty sure that uh, he would be regarded as something of a genius at skiing, I think. I don't imagine there'd be too many people near him that could get near to his ability. But I'm also pretty sure that when he got to the Winter Olympics, that he would see where he stood in the grand scheme of things, wouldn't he? And uh, Teclamarium, I hear, he came uh, 84th in the skiing, which if it's not last, I'm thinking it's got to be pretty close to being last. You see, the skier was exposed by the standard around him, wasn't he? And that is the same for Isaiah. You see, he encounters God. He encounters the divine holiness. He stands before an awesome God and he is cut to the heart by that. I think the King James has it as, woe is me for I am undone. I am undone. And friends, that is the correct response to a holy God. When faced with God's holiness, there must be a sense of mourning and repentance at our own sin, at our own inadequacy. So just, please permit me to ask you, is that where you are just now? As you sit here this morning, are you acutely aware of the holiness of God? Are you aware of your own sin? As you stand before him, is that you just now? Well, if it is, then stick with this as we look at the third point very briefly. And that is the good news. It is the third point, the grace of a holy God. The grace of a holy God. You see, we've seen Isaiah is, is, he's just standing there in the presence of God. He's acutely aware of his sin. But it doesn't just end there because we've got this kind of HD uh, vivid image here, don't we, of these seraphs flying to Isaiah with this coal in his hand and they, they touch Isaiah on the lips and they pronounce him as clean. So what do we learn about God's grace from this? What do we learn about the grace of a holy God? Well, what we learn here firstly is that it is a holy God who takes the initiative. Because I've just said that Isaiah is standing there before God, isn't he? And he doesn't do anything. He stands there motionless. He stands there helpless, mourning over his sin. But just look at it. Just look what happens. The Lord doesn't just leave him in that predicament. 
He doesn't leave him helpless. He doesn't leave him guilty. He sends the seraph to him with the burning coal. The cleansing from sin comes from a holy God. But the second thing, and really the last thing we see here, is the location of God's grace. Do you see it? The location, the location of God's grace. Because where does that coal come from, folks? Can you see where the coal comes from? Look at verse 6. The coal is taken by tongues from the altar. The altar. Now, surely, because of what we've read, you hear the the word altar, and you instantly think of Uzziah, don't you? You think of Uzziah charging in to the temple. That's where he stood. He stood beside the altar as he was struck down with leprosy. But, You hear the word altar, and surely you see that the altar is the place of sacrifice, isn't it? The altar is the place of sacrifice. You see, this great, dramatic, vivid HD image of the the seraph, this is just a foreshadow of the great cleansing of sin that would come at the cross at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And friends, it is there. That's the location at Calvary where we see God's grace and his holiness most clearly. Because such is God's purity, such is his holiness that he hates, that he cannot tolerate sin. And such is his holiness that he required one equally holy to die. So friend, if you are, as I asked a moment ago, if you're sitting there and you are aware of God and you are aware of your own sin, there is only one option for you. And that is to cry out to God for forgiveness, to cry out to a holy God for your salvation. And if you do that, if you cry out to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, then you will hear a phrase. You will one day hear a a phrase that outstrips anything that Mitt Romney's got to offer. It outstrips anything that Barack Obama has to offer because you'll hear that phrase that is uttered to Isaiah in verse 7. You will hear those words. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And you might say, ah, come on, man. How can you promise that? How can you promise that Jesus Christ can take away sin? How can you promise that he is that power? Well, friend, who do you think it is that Isaiah sees here? 
Who do you think is on that throne, high and exalted? Well, we learn in John's Gospel in chapter 12 that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw the glory of Jesus. It is Jesus who is high and exalted. It is Jesus and he alone who has the power to lift that weight of sin from your life today. And it is Jesus who is eternally and in purity and above all else. It is Jesus who is holy. Holy, holy. Let's pray.